The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. And to a more serious story now, the sole survivor of a Soviet mountaineering exhibition uh, expedition that ended in nine gruesome deaths has passed away. Yuri Yudin was 76. The deaths of his fellow climbers, known as the Dadlov Group after its uh, leader, have never been explained and have inspired much speculation. Prime Times Madina Kochinova can remind us of the mysterious details of this expedition. Um, and just tell us first, Madina, good evening, uh, what happened to the Dadlov Group? Well, the incident involving the uh, Dyatlov Expedition Group really remains one of the most mysterious facts that took place in the uh, 20th century. And really, after so many years, after more than uh, 50 years, nothing seems to add up to what exactly happened to these students. The defendant's commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes, uh, slit them, slit them all the way open. Uh. I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It's me, your host, Brendan Shane. With me, as always, is the beautiful, the lovely... Annie Weebs. How's it going, Shea Bay? We're on episode 21 today, and... Oh, but who's counting? Yeah, who is counting? We are on the heels of Mothman, the Mothman Festival, coming up this weekend in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and we will be there... And I cannot wait. It's going to be a good time. I'm really looking forward to it. Just to wind down, you know, it's been a really crazy month. And, you know, we're only 45 minutes away from this location. So we don't have to travel that far. And it's going to be a good time. We got the Unbelievers coming down. And I am super stoked. This is Shay's favorite weekend of the year. You guys don't understand. His little bits and bobs start to tingle about this time every year. And you can see it in his eyes. They glow red and beady, and he's he's so happy right now. You should see him giggling at me from behind the pop screen. It's great. I can see it in Shay's eyes. He wants to see Mothman. He loves Mothman. So, yeah, we're super excited for Mothman. But tonight, tonight's episode, I want to talk about one of my favorite all-time mysteries, Shay. Okay, Robert Stack, here we go. What are, what are we talking about today? We so I'm putting on my trench coat, you know, crawling out of the shadows like Robert Stack. 
Shay, tell me, have you heard of the Diet Law of Pass incident? Yes, I have. I've heard it on quite a few mystery shows, and uh, it's an intriguing topic. I never, I never really dug that much into it or learned a bunch about it, but I know you're into it, so I, I know you did a lot of research. I did. I don't remember if it was ever on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I know it's been covered on several different podcasts, but we've never actually covered it, and so I want to tell the stories to our listeners if they have never heard it before. So it's 1959 in the Soviet Union. Ten young hikers begin a trip into the Ural Mountains. One turns back and becomes the sole survivor of the fateful trip. The discovery of the remains of the nine missing hikers only deepens the mystery. What happened to the hikers of the Diet Law Pass? Decades of investigation have led to numerous theories, but the mystery still remains. The Dyatlov Pass incident refers to the death of nine hikers in the northern Ural Mountains in the former Soviet Union between February 1st and 2nd, 1959, under mysterious circumstances. The experienced trekking group, who were all from the Ural Polytechnical School, had established a camp at the slopes of Kolot Sayak. I'm going to mispronounce a lot of names in this, just FYI. So, colon, col- colon, colonoscopy. Not colon cleanse, Kolat Syak. Kolak Syak. Otherwise known by locals as Dead Mountain. So from here on out, it's Dead Mountain. Through dungeons deep and caverns old. Sorry. That's not it. Hobbit. The group established their camp on Dead Mountain in an area now named in honor of the group's leader, Igor Dyatlov. During the night, something caused them to tear their way out of their tents and flee the campsite, all while barely dressed for the heavy snowfall and sub-zero temperatures. In 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in the Soviet. Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineer student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, was the leader who assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. Each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, were experienced grade two hikers with ski tour experience and would be receiving grade three certification upon their return. At the time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers, which is over 190 miles. The goal of the expedition was to reach Otorten, a mountain 10 kilometers north of the site of the incident. This route in February was estimated as a Category 3, which was the most difficult. So they were going 200 miles almost? That's how That's how, how far they had to no, travel? No, they had to travel almost 200 miles to receive the certification that they had all received. So they were all experienced hikers, basically, is what they're saying. Yeah, but what was this trek was supposed to be? 200 miles? No, this trek was going up Dead Mountain. And so this pass that they were going through, they named after Igor Dyatlov, who yeah, was the, the leader of this group. But I'm saying their whole trek, what was supposed to be so they could get this... Uh, 
stage three? They were going to, right. They wanted to obtain their grade three certification. So they were all these students and they put this group together. Before leaving, Dietloff had agreed that he would send a telegram as soon as the group returned to their origin spot, which was a town called Vizai. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions. On February 20th, the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and militia forces became involved with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. On February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Dead Mountain. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sharavan, the student who found the tent, said, The tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. Eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks or a single shoe, or some even barefoot, could be followed leading down towards the edge of the nearby woods on the opposite side of the path, almost a mile to the northeast. However, after about 500 meters, the tracks were covered in snow. At the forest edge, under a large tree, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were the first two bodies, those of Krivonashenko and Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up about five meters high, suggesting that one of the hikers had climbed up looking for something, maybe trying to locate their camp. Between the tree and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, that of the leader Dyatlov, Kolmaragova, and Slobodin, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting they were attempting to return to the tent. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th under four meters of snow in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from the tree. Three of those four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs of that those who had died first had their clothes given to them or taken from the others. Dubanina was wearing Krivashenko's burned, torn trousers and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. A view of the tent as the rescuers found it on February 26 was as follows. The tent had been cut open from the inside, and most of the skiers had fled in socks or bare feet. Autopsies were performed immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was eventually concluded they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. An examination of the four bodies that were found in May shifted the story as to what had actually occurred during the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Thibaut Brignagoles had major skull damage, and both Dubanina and Zoltareyev had major chest fractures. According to a doctor, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparable to the force of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. However, major external injuries were found on Dubanina, who was missing her tongue, eyes, parts of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of her skull. 
She also had extensive, yeah, she also had extensive skin maceration on her hands. It was claimed that Dubonina was found lying face down in a small stream that ran under the snow and that her external injuries were in line with putrefaction that occurs in a wet environment and may not have been associated with her death. Although the temperature was very low, it was around 25 to 30, negative 25 to 30 degrees Celsius with a storm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some of them only had on one shoe, while others had no shoes or only socks. Some were found wrapped in snips of ripped clothes that seemed to have been cut from those who were already dead. That's the question I have. Like, if it's... Pu- well, I mean, well, I'll get into all my thoughts, because there's a lot to take in when you look at the whole scene of everything, like what could have actually happened. But like they said, she looked like she was putrefied. How could she be putrefied? Like they said, in a wet location, like something that would happen if you were dead in a wet location, like a swamp or something like that. It's negative 25 degrees. Like, how do you putrefy? So Unless you melted. It had been several months before they found the bodies of the other hikers. So they were from February to May. So if you're thinking about temperature change, then the melting snow could have caused a stream if that's how she was found and could have caused some of that. There are a lot of theories about why she had that, and we'll get into them in just a bit. Journalists who reported on the available parts of the inquest files claimed that they stated, so this is kind of the breakdown of what they found when they were at the scene. Six of the group members died of hypothermia, three from fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby on Dead Mountain apart from the nine dead travelers. The tent had been ripped open from the inside The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. High levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothing. Ooh. Mm Mm-hmm. So there you go. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansai people, they stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Yeti. Oh. Mm-hmm. Released documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. And last but not least, there were no survivors of the incident. Which is kind of true and kind of not true. Because I said before, they started with 10 people and they ended up with only 9. There was one hiker that started out with them that turned back... A day into the hike, the guy had some pretty severe um, health problems. He had a congenital heart defect. Well, yeah, but you really couldn't consider him a survivor because he didn't even make it. No, he went a day into the hike yeah, and then turned around and came back. So he was able to offer zero information yeah. about what happened other than probably if he had continued, he, he would have... tell you the mood of all the hikers and everything at when they were leaving, if they were in good spirits or not, but that was about it. Right. So at the time, the verdict was the group members had all died because of some type of, quote, compelling natural force. The inquest officially ceased in May 1959 as a result of absence of any type of guilty party, and it's said that the files were sent to some type of, quote, secret archive. Dun, dun, dun. Nobody really knows what that means. Well, there's a whole slew of things that could have gone wrong here. One, like you think right away that 
the tent was ripped from the, that's one of the descriptions. The tent looked like it was ripped from the inside and people scrambled. Well, maybe they had a fire and the fire got out of control inside the tent. They were escaping, but it doesn't explain the force unless there was something inside the tent that blew up and blew them outside. Still doesn't describe the people running away. You know, why would you run from something like that? You know what I mean? Why wouldn't you try to see what's going on to help the people who can still be saved and then try to go get help? But it just doesn't make any sense that half these people are naked, which means something happened in the middle of the night when they were sleeping. And, oh, my God, you, let's, let's go down the, the, the wormhole of weirdness here. We haven't right. said that in a while. Oh, let's go the, down the wormhole of weirdness. We're going to get into the wormhole of weirdness here in a couple minutes. So. Well, if you have some like descriptions of what people think may have happened, go ahead, because they might be the same as what I'm thinking. Oh, but, I have many theories. Okay, well, then let's let's hit the theories, because I have... I'll put one out there. One, like I just mentioned before, could have been some kind of Yeti, some kind of weird cryptid creature that attacked them, you know what I mean, with high levels of radiation. UFOs, you know, that's that's another big one because it's Russia. They have a lot of secret stuff like we, we hear and do in the United States. But go ahead, take us down that wormhole of weirdness, weebs. So before I get into your wormhole, there were a couple more of like... Re- you smell that? Is it your wormhole? <laughs> So there were some more related reports that came out from other people who um, were kind of quiet at first, but, you know, like a lot of these kind of secretive stories, things start to come out later. So a 12-year-old named Yuri Kuncevich, who later became the head of... Yuri Kuncevich. Yeah. He became the leader of the Diet Law Foundation attended five of the hikers' funerals. At 12 years old? At 12 years old. Kind of creepy, right? But he says that their skin all had a, quote, deep brown tan. Okay. Another group of hikers south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in Ivdel and adjacent areas continually during the period of February to March 1959 by various independent witnesses. However, these sightings were not noted in the initial investigation in 1959, and these independent witnesses came forward years later. So now people are coming forward and saying, yeah, the night that they disappeared, we saw these like weird orange lights in the sky. So it could have been some kind of government testing so they were exposed, what they said was like to a high level of pressure, which could be like some form of infrasound too. Maybe uh, where they were in this past, the wind was blowing so hard. I mean, there's all kinds of, it could be a natural thing too, but the radiation thing, I mean, is that a known fact? Because that lends credibility to maybe a UFO sighting or something like that. But the, the pressure... Their bodies look like they were in a car accident. I mean, that's really, really weird. You're up on a mountain, it's freezing cold, and all of a sudden you get all these traumatic injuries like you were just, bam, like stomped on or thrown or something like that. Picked up, dropped, who knows? With no external wounds. So yeah. they're saying there were it's no weird. scratches, there were Which no cuts, like there was no sounds like it could no be blood. some kind of infrasound, like some kind of high-frequency It was pressure. Pulsing, yeah. Right. An author named Anatoly Gushkin summarized his research in a book called the price of state secrets is nine lives. He speculated the theory of a Soviet secret weapon experiment, 
but its publication led to public discussion stimulated by interest in the paranormal field. Many of those who had remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the incident when this happened. One of them was a former police officer named Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959. In 1990, he published an article which included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres in the sky, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss their claim. So this is during the whole, uh, you know, nuclear winter, everyone's scared that the United States and Russia are going to shoot nuclear weapons at each other. I mean, it's 10 years after World War II. All kind of experiments are going on, both United States and Soviet Union. I mean, it, it could be. It could be a secret military weapon that was discharged in that area, and people just happened to be... People could have been camped out in that area where they were testing this weapon, for all we know. So the first theory was that the hikers had been caught in an avalanche. The theory that an avalanche caused the hiker's death, while initially was popular, has also been questioned. So what the investigators slash researchers in 1959 kind of had to say was that they thought the group woke up in a panic because they heard something. They heard the rumble of the avalanche. They cut their way out of the tent because an avalanche had covered the entrance or their tent because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. It would have been better at that point to have repaired a slit in the tent than risk being buried alive under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and they ran to the safety of the nearby woods where the trees would help slow the oncoming avalanche. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing and sleeping bags, since they assumed maybe the danger had already passed. But it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the dark. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from those who were already dead. But at any rate, the group of four bodies who were discovered with the damage could have been caught in the avalanche and buried under the snow. So they're saying basically the avalanche happened. They scattered because they heard it coming down the, um, the mountain. And the four people who died with the, all the internal injuries had been crushed under the snow. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, that makes sense. But wouldn't you think you'd have some kind of contusion or something on the outside of your body? You, you, you would just only have internal injuries? I mean, I could see it happening. So even though an avalanche was their first thought of what happened, there was also evidence contradicting the avalanche theory. So this included that the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered in very shallow snow, and if there had been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, those bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. So there was no damage to the tree line. There's nothing covered in snow except the bodies and those and the tent. What, so how long after they disappeared did they go? They disappeared in December? No, they took off on February 
the first. They were supposed to um, telegram back. They expected back by the 12th. When they weren't heard from on uh, by February the 20th, the family says, hey, something's not right. You need to go look for them. They were found on February the 26th, so, the first of them. But then the ones that were covered in snow weren't found until May the 4th. Okay, so if they were indeed trapped in an avalanche, wouldn't you think there still would have been a significant amount of snow that they wouldn't they wouldn't have found them six days after they you know went looking for them? Or you would have thought there would have been more snow. So the avalanche theory, I mean, I could see it happening. I mean, it makes sense, but it also doesn't make sense because because of that the the injuries that they did have and the way the snow was piled and and how they found them. Well, I think the one thing when I first heard the story, I'm like, oh. Pff. It was an avalanche. Like that's why is this even like a mystery? This is this seems so obvious that they they heard it coming down the mountain, they scattered, and then you know that was it. But the fact that there's no damage to anything else around it, you know, if there there are trees still standing because well, the tent's still there, the tent is still there. It's some of it's covered in snow, but it's still there. And the tree line is still intact. So you're telling me that an avalanche came down this mountain and missed everything but their tent? That seems unlikely. Unless it came from another dimension. Interdimensional avalanches? Yeah. Hmm. That's, that that's not one, on right? my list of theories. That's, but that's a, Yeah, that's a new one. We can pencil that in. You're welcome. Okay. Listen, in Fortnite, they have these new bombs you can drop. They're like dimensional bombs. And you open up a little portal and it drops all this junk on people. Could have been the same thing. It could have been Fortnite in the 50s. Somebody threw that little grenade and bam, opened up a, a wormhole and just dropped all this stuff down on people. A review of the 1959 investigation evidence completed in 2015 to 2019 by experienced investigators from the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation, which we're going to call the ICRF. Oh, ICRF. The right. ICRF. So 2015... The group of families uh, come to the ICRF and say, hey, we feel like this was not given due diligence at this time. So can you research it again? And so they did and they wanted to, the families actually wanted to confirm that the avalanche was actually what killed them. And so the members of the ICRF actually went back up there in an attempt to recreate it. And so what they looked into at that time was the fact that nobody had ever taken into account what the weather was like that night. So they said the night that the, the hikers died, the weather was very harsh. A snowstorm had occurred. The temperature fell below negative 40 degrees Celsius. And so what they're saying was that the harsh weather condition at the time played a critical role in the events of the tragedy, which they actually were kind of able to, quote, reconstruct at the time. And so what they said happened was um, on February the 1st, when they got to Dead Mountain, they built a large nine-person tent on an open slope without any natural barriers around it. On that day and a few preceding days, a heavy snowfall had continued with strong wind and frost. The group who had traversed through the slope and dug into the snow weakened the snow base around the tent. So they're basically saying they loosened up the snow on the side of the hill and then built their tent there without any other type of shelter around it. 
During the night, the snow field above the tent started to slide down, pushing on the tent. The group woke up and started to evacuate in a panic. Some of the hikers were able to get dressed while others did not. All of them escaped through a hole in the tent. The whole group went down the slope and found a place perceived as safe from the avalanche, but they were only 1,500 meters down right at the border of the forest. Four of the group, only in their underwear and pajamas, camp at a small fireplace that they started at the forest border. Their bodies were the first found and were confirmed to die from hypothermia. Three of the other hikers, including Dietlov, attempted to climb back to the tent, possibly to get their sleeping bags. They had better clothes than those who were at the fireplace. So they basically said, hey, we have better clothes. Let us go. Right. Or with they're going to they were the more experienced of the hikers. So leave the others behind here. Build a fire. Give us your clothes. We're going to attempt to go back and find our tent. Their bodies were found at various places ranging from 300 to 600 meters from the campfire in poses suggesting they fell down from exhaustion while trying to climb in the deep snow in the extremely cold weather. The remaining four, equipped with their warm clothes and footwear, were apparently trying to find or build a better camping place in the forest further down the slope. Their bodies were found about 70 meters from the fire, under several meters thick layer of snow, with trauma indicating they, now this is where it gets me, fell into a snow hole formed from a stream and these bodies were found two months later explain to me a snow hole and how you fall into a snow hole unless it's some kind of frozen frozen hole i'm pretty sure i read about that once on urban dictionary and it's not anything i'm allowed to say on here but they're basically saying that um okay so they're still alive they're trying to leave and they fall into this ravine of snow and this caused all of those pressure injuries that killed them. You remember that movie with uh, Jeremy? Is it Jeremy Renner where he plays that that uh, forest park ranger or whatever is, is in Alaska, North Dakota or something like that? John Bernthal's in it. Remember, he's the army guy or the security guard. He gets beat up and killed by the yeah, other Yeah, that guys. was based on a true story on yeah. a Native American reservation. So that's like a... Isn't that a real known fact that if you breathe that that cold air in and excitement so quick that it will just crystallize the inside of your lungs? Can it does. that cause that force and pressure to do that too? But there was no blood. There was nothing externally to show that there was any type. Like literally, it just looked like yeah, these people were crushed just, to death. Couldn't that build up pressure in your your lungs and stuff too? There's just the air being so cold. Uh, you're gonna bleed out of your mouth and your nose and all your orifices if that happens. Because it, your lungs are just basically freezing from the inside out. So all of the blood vessels there are going to burst. burst. Yeah, they're going to burst. You're going to have external bleeding. And they did not. It was literally just pressure that crushed their insides. So in summation, according to the ICRF investigators, the factors contributing to the tragedy were extremely bad weather and lack of experience of the group leader in such conditions which led to the selection of a dangerous campsite. After the snow slide, another mistake of the group was to split up rather than building a temporary camping place down in the forest and tried to survive through the night. So they're basically just saying they weren't experienced enough to climb this extremely dangerous pass. And when this one incident happened, they panicked and it led to their deaths. Well, being experienced, I mean... 
this guy said he was super experienced. It just doesn't make any sense that they lived in this environment. They lived in this area. Why wouldn't they know how to survive the night unless something happened? But that theory makes more sense to me than anything else. I mean, if they were able to go up there and basically recreate a scenario, there you go. I mean, who really knows what happened? But that makes the most sense to me. And everyone wants to make it paranormal or mysterious because you can't put your thumb on what it is but it could be something as simple as they just chose the wrong place to camp and nature nature selected them true and that's that was originally my thought as well the you know the other factors around it the the pressure that crushed these other people to death could have been from the snow but the one thing that gets me was that nothing else around it was damaged you're still talking about the tree line that existed there and they were able to get to that tree line in the dark, build a camp. So they weren't that far away. Why? Okay. Number one, why didn't they just build their camp there if they were that experienced? And I think that's part of what the ICRF is saying there. But at the same time, it's like, what what caused that pressure trauma if there was no immediate acute avalanche that these people could not run from? Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, you aroused in the middle of the night, you have no clothes on and you take off running. You must be scared of something. You were That's afraid scary. of something, right. I mean, I don't think I would be the guy to be like, oh, you're more experienced than me here. Take my clothes. I'm going to sit here and freeze to death waiting on you to go get me more blankets. I don't think I'd be the guy to be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to strip to my skivs. Nah. So that was the original thought by most of the investigators. But all these other incidents around it, the mysterious lights and the radiation led people to believe that there was something more behind it. So one of the hypotheses that came out was that the hikers were killed by infrasound. Yeah, that's what I said before, infrasound. So this theory was popularized by an author named Danny Eicher. He wrote a book in 2013 called Dead Mountain. And what he's saying is that a wind that went around the mountain, which was called a catabotic wind, produced infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. They used infrasound in the wars to cause psychological stuff to the enemy. They would put all this low frequency sound and it it makes you go nuts. And it can. It can cause internal damage. The higher the, the frequency, the the more damage it causes. So Iker's theory stated, stated that infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental stress in the hikers. He claimed that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and they fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure but in the dark were unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by the three victims were the result of them stumbling over the ledge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. Yeah, so that's what I I said that earlier. If we go back a few minutes in this, go ahead and rewind the podcast. Yeah, there you go. But I said that earlier, like there has been a lot of theories that a lot of hauntings are caused because of infrasound too, because it does that. It psychologically makes you hallucinate and hear things that aren't there. They actually did an experiment at Eastern State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, uh, USA, and they pumped all this 
noise through the the cell blocks of Eastern State Penitentiary and put people in there before and after. And they would put them in there before and they'd be like, oh, it's calm in here. Everything's cool. Then they would start pumping that infrasound through there and people would start freaking out like, oh, man, I'm feeling this thing or I thought I saw a ghost in here. And they come to realize that sometimes when the wind is whipping through here at certain, you know, times of the day or at certain miles per hour, it's causing this infrasound and people are seeing stuff and hearing stuff. So, I mean, that makes sense, too. That makes a lot more sense than camping in the wrong spot because it's it's a natural process and they're in these mountain conditions and the wind's blowing and who knows i mean who knows what it's doing the only thing that i didn't see on there to support that was that these campers fell down uh, they went off the cliff or a ravine yeah and but if the they're rocks. if they're if they're freaking out because they're having this panic attack or the psychological uh induced state I mean, they're freaking out. They're cutting out of the tent. They're running out because they're scared. They think they're hearing stuff or something's coming, and then bam, you're in the dark. You don't know what you're doing. It's the flight or fight response, and you're just, bam, I got to hurry up and, and get my shit together and just go. So basically, it's still a natural phenomena, much less likely to happen than an avalanche, but they're saying it can absolutely be uh, be achieved by these catabolic winds that are going around the mountainside and basically it just like you said it caused them to panic and and that was it speaking of panicking you ever seen that episode of breaking bad where they have the fly inside the lab and they're freaking out because they can't Mm, they can't kill the fly and then they finally get the fly they're both like freaking out the whole time they have to clean the whole lab and they still find that fly we have that fly right here where we're recording right now so every once in a while you get a little that's the stupid fly and we've stopped three or four times to try to kill it and we've stunned it i mr miyagi karate chopped it and even clapped it and caught it with chopsticks and it's still it's still he's having a real walter white moment right now and it's so fitting because we're re-watching breaking bad right now and until you said that yeah i really want to whack that sucker and it's little fly head he's literally right behind you right now i watched that episode today at work why did you watch it without me what i've been watching it at work so you watch the fly episode? I go, I want to watch the fly episode again. Well, you're watching it right now. Yeah, I know. It's real life. Theory number three, military testing. Speculation exists that the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. This theory alleges that the hikers had been woken by loud explosions. They fled the tent in a shoeless, shell-shocked panic and found themselves unable to return for their supplies. After some members froze to death while attempting to endure the bombardment, others commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. There are records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in that area at the time that the hikers were there. The theory coincides with the reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers. And so they say it could have been potentially military aircraft or these descending parachute mines because the parachute um, bombs would explode in midair. It wasn't when they actually hit the ground. And so what they said were, as these things fell from the sky... The concussion they would explode and could cause some of those pressure type injuries that were found on those other four hikers. That makes sense too. And the common theory is that they were scared of something because of the way that they were found. 
And that, you know, I mean, that whatever theory they come up with, I see that altogether being something scared them. But this could be another good theory because that's why the government's not saying anything about it because it's their fault. They were testing in that area. They don't want to admit that they killed these people. Bickety-bam, cover it up. See you later. When you have authorities coming forward decades later who said, yeah, we saw something weird in the sky. We saw these weird glowing orange orbs. But we were told by people who, you know, were on a higher pay scale than us not to talk about it. Then we just shut our mouths. With, yeah, we just did what we were yeah, told. Yeah, and that leads you to believe that there was something else behind it. If those people thought that they had really died by an avalanche, why would they say, don't say some of these things that you saw while you were out there? Yeah, I retract my last statement. They didn't die by an avalanche. Mm, they were definitely scared of something. And I, you know, just by everything that you said, the way that they were found... You know, some of them had clothes on, some of them it That's really why lends this the credibility is like that they were one scared. of my favorite stories, because you hear it and you immediately think, this isn't a mystery. They died in an avalanche. And then you start to hear all these other accounts that come out and you're like, wait, there are things that aren't adding up here. So there you go. That's why I'm in your wormhole right now. Tickling around. I feel you. Yeah. Another scientific theory behind the death is something that's called paradoxical undressing. Shay, you were, <laughs> you were in nursing school. Do you know what paradoxical undressing is? Put me on the spot, weebs, but absolutely not. I don't remember back that far. I actually never heard this in any of my education either, but it's actually, um, it, it's a scientific fact. And so many of the publications stated that the hikers' deaths were caused by nothing more than hypothermia, which can induce a behavior known as paradoxical undressing in which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning and warmth. It is undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia. However, the others in the group appear to have acquired the clothing from the dead, which suggests that they were of sound mind enough to try to add their layers back on. So basically the way that paradoxical undressing works is, when your body goes into this extreme hypothermic state, you think you're on fire. You feel this burning sensation. You actually feel. Have you ever been out sleigh yeah, riding? I've been, I've been right. Yeah, you get your extremities so cold it feels like they're burning. Yeah. You, yeah, you feel like you're burning, and then when your body, it's your body's reaction to try. Isn't that like some kind of necrosis or whatever? Your tissues dying. It's not really necrosis. It's the. It has to do with the blood vessels dilating. So you've been so extremely cold. Your body's reaction is to open those blood vessels. And so you're feeling that blood rush to the skin, which causes that warmth and the burning. And so that's why they I sometimes... cold constricted. Well, but your body's natural reaction is try to warm yourself yeah. back up. Like when your body's too hot, then you sweat. So the paradoxical uh, undressing happens when they feel like they're so hot that they have to undress. And so what they theorized was that they were actually just hypothermic and started taking off all their clothes. Doesn't explain why they ripped their tent open from the inside out and fled. 
But if they had been suffering from uh, paradoxical hypothermia, then it could have been the reason that I guess when the other started to realize that they were actually cold, they started to put the clothes back on. Maybe Hansel was just there because Hansel's so hot right now. He's so hot right now. No, I mean, maybe they cut the hole to put a vent vent hole in the uh, tent because they were so hot. I don't know about that. I feel like that one's a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they didn't need the vent hole. But again, if you're talking about paradoxical undressing, it still does not explain why those hikers were found nearly crushed to death. If you're out in the woods in the middle of winter with your girlfriend, don't do paradoxical undressing. Okay? You don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't want to do that type of undressing. Die. Yeah. That was a little perverted shade joke for you. I threw that in there. So, do you want to hear what I feel like is going to be your favorite theory of all? You save the best for last? I save the best okay. for last. So, this <laughs> is... This is the one that actually has to do with the paranormal field. In 2014, the Discovery Channel aired a special called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives, which explored the theory that the Dyatlov group was killed by a Russian Yeti. The show begins with the premise that the hikers' injuries were such that only a creature with superhuman strength could have caused them. The episode concluded with there being no solid evidence for its claims, but in the interview with two members of a search party who were first to the scene, they claimed they saw footprints larger than those of an animal, and those footprints were never included in an official Soviet government report, and additionally that months after trying to gain access, a Russian documentary narrator finally got access to a classified Soviet military document regarding the investigation of the missing hikers, in which the start date of the investigation is February the 6th. But the hikers weren't reported until almost 10 days later. They weren't even known to be missing at that time, which in their mind indicated a Soviet military cover-up operation. The documentary also claims that a howling sound they've recorded during their expedition does not belong to any known species. Did it sound like this? (laughs) Did it sound like that? That was my fell attempt of doing a Bigfoot yell. We have a video actually that I need to post of when we went looking for, for the Ohio grass man. You heard that episode a few episodes back and, um, yeah, it's a funny video. I'm sitting by the fire. I'm a little tipsy, and I'm like, and he's like, I want to hear you do a Bigfoot call. So I actually do a Bigfoot call. And it's you, so heard, loud. you heard one in the episode. He that I terrified did. the the neighbors that we had miles the, the around. Little, I'm the little sure. girl that was up there. Yeah, the little kid. But so it's not a completely unfounded thing that you immediately went to. The abominable snowman. Yeah, it was. It was uh, hands down. That's what it was. This case is solved right now. I don't care what anybody says. It was the Yeti. It was Russian Yeti. Russian Yeti. Shvetti. <laughs> His Shvetti. So those were the main theories that have always kind of been lumped together about the Diet Law of Pass incident. So you've heard everything from science behind avalanche. The catabolic winds, um, paradoxical undressing, mm-hmm. to military cover-ups, and Russian Yeti. So, Shay, what's your 
final inquest into the Diet Law of Pass incident, what do you think really happened? As I said about four times already in this episode, the theories that I think are 100% correct is that something scared these people. The main one that I really think it could have been, and I really honestly do believe infrasound had a lot to do with it. I think that could be why they scattered so quickly and so frantically got out of their tents, cut a whole lot, because I think they were hearing something and thinking something was going on that wasn't happening. The other one that makes sense is obviously the military testing the parachute bombs, the concussion, the injuries these people had. Infrasound was the first thing that I went to, but the concussion from these bombs exploding could be the other thing, and it could have blew them back, knocked them however far away, and I mean, that makes sense. I don't think it's anything really paranormal, honestly, and I know that's weird for me to say, but I, I think it's something that, that either was a man-made thing or nature. Or it could have been a combination. What if they were in soviet military testing grounds and these parachute mines were coming down and the boom from the parachute mines exploding mid-air caused an avalanche which led them to you know leave their tent in such a panic that some of them died of hypothermia while others could have been you know exposed to the bombs i i still i still go back to the avalanche theory and think you're in such crazy conditions, negative 40 degrees Celsius, a snowstorm. These guys were up there. And even though they were grade two experienced hikers, you can't plan for those types of uh, elements when you're out there. What still gets me is the fact that there were no other elemental factors that concluded an avalanche. You know, the tree line was still intact. That's the one thing that I can't wrap my head around. That's the only thing that keeps me from conclusively saying I was absolutely an avalanche that killed them. Regardless of what it is, it's it's something that we'll probably never know. You know, if if it was something caused by the government, they're going to keep it covered up. You know, it's just going to it's going to be an ongoing thing and it'll be a mystery in 10 years and we'll still be talking about it, but who knows? It's hard to say. So that is my story of the Diet Law of Pass. So Annie, you have anything coming up? Annie, you just squeaked one out and I heard that through the headphones. <laughs> tried to tried I'm to pregnant. sneak that past leave like, no, no. I should leave that in there for everyone to hear because it sounded like a little, you know, when you go, you're riding the, down the street on your bike and you honk your little horn. That's what it sounded like. It sounded like I sat on a mouse. <laughs> yeah. Squeak, squeak it was. It was pretty bad. Wish you could all smell it in here too. It doesn't Making smell. fun of the pregnant woman in the Actually. room. People say don't make fun of the pregnant woman or make a pregnant woman mad, but I just push buttons all day long. That's it, what I do. It's the funnest thing to do. It's a constant button pushing in our household. So, but before we go, Annie, you got some events you want to you want to plug that we're getting ourselves into this October. Yeah. So speaking of me being pregnant, the next couple of months are really kind of like my paranormal farewell for a while. I wanted to to get in as many events as I could before I was, you know, ready to pop. And so, like you said before, this weekend, we are going to be at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, just meeting up with a bunch of our friends. We're not setting up as a vendor this year, but uh, we're going to be out there. If you want to come out and hang out with us, we would love to uh, have you out there. We may do a trip to the TNT bunkers that evening. Everyone's welcome to come along. On October the 5th, we will be back in Point Pleasant again. We are going to be at an event with our friends from 
um, Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast, Jerry and Tracy Polly have invited me out to give kind of a little synopsis of um, a story that I have, my own Mothman story. And we might even have more. You never know by that yeah. time. So October 5th, you can actually go to Hillbilly Horror Stories and purchase their tickets from Eventbrite. They're $15. It's Hillbilly Horror Stories, the Brohio podcast, and History Goes Bump. It's like going to be a whole evening of podcasting. Really, really fun. Come out, hang out with us there. Yeah, and and just to plug this a little bit too, if you dig serial spirits, you like the mystery, the crime, the paranormal, you need to check out the Brohio podcast too because they they're from uh, the Dayton area in Ohio, but they almost kind of do the same thing. They're all they're all over the place with the with the ghosts, with the the murders, and I've heard a couple of cool serial killer stories of guys I never even knew existed on their podcast. So yeah, I mean, come come check out this event. It's going to be a good time. October the twelfth, I'm going to be at another local event, the Nitro Festival of Fright at Ridenour Lake, Nitro, West Virginia. I'm going to be doing a paranormal panel with Dave Spinks. Dave Spinks is a West Virginia investigator, um, kind of crypto head like we are, and we are going to do a um, a paranormal panel. We're going to let people ask us questions, and so that's October the 12th. October the 19th is kind of our farewell for a while. We are putting on our own event at one of the most haunted locations I've ever been to, which is Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. We are doing a public event with Gateway Paranormal, the guys from Tennessee. They're going to come up and hang out with us. And we are going to lead groups around the property and um, hunt for ghosts, basically. It's literally one of the craziest places I've ever experienced. I just had the opportunity to work with Travel Channel again, go back up there and shoot um, most terrifying places. And so that interview is going to be out in October as well. So if you guys are interested, you can go to Lake Shawnee Amusement Park's Facebook page or their website. Tickets are $75 for the entire night. You will have the ability to sleep on the property if you want to. Yeah, I did that once and it was super creepy. And so, um, 70- we're, not, we're, we're getting a hotel room. Sorry. <laughs> we, I'm too pregnant to sleep on the ground right now, but you know, me, you gateway paranormal and one of the most haunted places I've ever been to come check that out with us. Also on October 4th, um, the quarterly ep- uh, episode, the quarterly release of Living Paranormal Magazine is coming out, and I'm going to be writing about my top 10 serial killer picks. Ooh, top 10 serial killer picks by Weebs. I'm throwing some in there that you guys have never heard me talk about before. I did a little research on this one. It's interesting. Good, yeah, she's been writing it for the past few days, and uh, it's pretty pretty long. So, Shay, that's a lot of stuff. People can come out and see us. I'd love to see you before I, I go on maternity leave. So, no, yeah, come and a, hang little, out with a us. little side note there, too. That doesn't mean the end of the podcast for a while. It just means the end of public events and TV stuff. And uh, yeah. So, guys, we're at the end of this one, episode 21. Thanks for sticking with us. Please go to iTunes and leave a five star review. And if you have not checked out all the other great shows on Paranormal Warehouse, Go to www.paranormalwarehouse.com. Check them out. You can get them in podcast form there on iTunes. You can get our stuff on SoundCloud and iTunes and paranormalwarehouse.com. 
Go to their Facebook page, like it, and you can catch all the live events that happen all the time. We're not just talking shows. We're talking about people going investigations, and they take you with them. Go check it out. Leave us a five-star review. Leave the other shows a five-star review. We'll be back again in a week with a serial snippet, guys. Thanks for checking us out. Stay creepy. Once again, thank you for listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out weekly on Paranormal Warehouse at ParanormalWarehouse.com, on iTunes at Serial Spirits, and on SoundCloud. Please rate and review the show. Follow us on all your social media apps. Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits, and on Instagram. Until next time. Be aware and be safe.